This is Shakespeare Closely Read. I'm your host, Mark Naftal. In this podcast, I read the works of William Shakespeare and other authors in the public domain. In addition to reading these works in their entirety, I will stop frequently to comment on the text, his meaning, and lessons to be drawn. This is a place for lovers of Shakespeare's words, words, words. I delight in the beauty of his language and believe through this beauty we can find truth in how to live a virtuous life. I hope this podcast can help students understand Shakespeare better and how to appreciate his sometimes difficult language. Maybe you can use it to help you write papers or study for tests. Drop me an email at shakespeareclosely at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, alternative interpretations, or would like some help. Let us begin. Last episode, we... um, Uh, we finished the play of Julius Caesar, and now, as I did with uh, Coriolanus, I am going to uh, read some of Plutarch's lives about Julius Caesar. Not the whole thing, it is a rather long biography, but I'm going to focus on the events uh, uh, regarding his assassination. Uh, as I recall, when I read this before, uh, it's pretty obvious that Shakespeare borrowed liberally from Plutarch. So let's just pick up. Um, there's talking about Caesar's plans and so forth. But that which brought upon him the most apparent and mortal hatred was his desire of being king, which gave the common people the first occasion to quarrel with him and prove the most specious pretense to those who had been his secret enemies all along. Those who would have procured him that title gave it out. It was foretold in the Sibyl's books that the Romans should conquer the Parthians when they fought against them under the conduct of a king, but not before. And one day, as Caesar was coming down from Alba to Rome, some were so bold as to salute him by the name of king. But he, finding the people disrelish it, that's a nice word, disrelish it, seemed to resent it himself and said his name was Caesar, not king. Upon this, there was a general silence, and he passed on looking not very well pleased or contented. Another time, when the Senate had conferred on him some extravagant honors, he chanced to receive the message as he was sitting on the rostra, rostra, that's where they spoke from in the forum, where through the, the consuls and praetors themselves waited on him, attended by the whole body of the Senate, he did not rise but behaved himself to them as if they had uh, been private men and told them his honors wanted rather to be retrenched than increased. This treatment offended not only the Senate, but the commonality too, as if they thought the affront upon the Senate equally reflected upon the whole Republic, so that all could decently leave him one off, looking much discomposed. Caesar, perceiving the false step he had made, immediately retired home, and laying his throat bare, told his friends that he was ready to offer this to anyone who would give him the stroke. Okay, so I guess he wasn't ready later on. But afterwards, he made the malady from which he suffered, uh, that's at the epilepsy, the excuse for his sitting, saying that those who are attacked by it lose their presence of mind. If they talk much standing, they presently grow giddy, fall into convulsions, and quite lose their reason. But that was not the reality, for he'd willingly have stood up to the Senate, had not a Cornelius Balbus, one of his friends, or rather flatterers, hindered him. Will you not remember, said he, you are Caesar, and claim the honor which is due to your merit. 
He gave a fresh occasion of resentment by his affront to the tribunes. The Lupercalia was then celebrated, and that's um, where I think Shakespeare plays opens. A feast at the first institution belonging, as some writers, writers say, to the shepherds, and having some connection with the Arcadian um, Lycia. Many young noblemen and magistrates run up and down the city with their upper garments off, striking all they meet with thongs of hide by way of sport. And many women, even of the highest rank, place themselves in the way and hold out their hands to the lash, as boys in a school do to the master, out of a belief that it procures an easy labor to those who are with child and makes those conceived who are barren. Caesar, dressed in a triumphal robe, seated himself in a golden chair at the rostra to view the ceremony. Anthony, as consul, was one of those who ran this course. Okay, so Mark Anthony was consul that year. And when he came into the forum and the people made way for him, he went up and reached to Caesar a diadem wreathed with laurel. Upon this there was a shout, but only a slight one, made by the few who were planted there for that purpose. When Caesar refused it, there was universal applause. Upon the second offer, very few, and upon the second refusal, all again applauded. Caesar, finding it would not take, rose up and ordered the crown to be carried into the capital. Caesar's statues were afterwards found with royal diadems on their heads. Flavia, Flavius and Marullus, two tribunes of the people, went presently and pulled them off, and having apprehended those who first saluted Caesar as king, committed them to prison. Okay, so that's, um, Shakespeare has this. Uh, it wasn't clear they were tribunes, though. I remember, tribunes were representatives of the common people. The people followed them with acclamations and called them by the name of Brutus, because Brutus was the first who ended the succession of kings and transferred the power which before was lodged into one man and one man into the hands of the Senate and the people. Caesar so far resented this that he displaced Morales and Flavius, and in urging his charges against them, at the same time ridiculed the people by himself giving the men more than once the names of Bruti and Cumaii, uh, Cumaii. Um, footnote here, Brutus in Latin means heavy, stupid, and the Cumans were, uh, for one reason or other, proverbial of dullness. So you call them stupid or brutes, I guess. This made the multitude turn their thoughts to Marcus Brutus, who, by his father's side, was thought to be descended from that first Brutus, and by his mother's side from the Servii, Servilii, Servilii another noble fa family, besides being nephew and son-in-law to Cato. But the honors and favors he had received from Caesar, Caesar took off the edge from the desires he might have felt for overthrowing the new monarchy. For he had not only been pardoned himself after Pompey's defeat at Pharsalia, and had uh, procured the same grace for many of his friends, but was one in whom Caesar had a particular confidence. He had at that time the most honorable praetorship of the year. It was named for the consulship four years after being preferred before Cassius, his competitor. Okay, so Cassius was his competitor. I'm on the question as to the choice Caesar is related, said that Cassius had the fair pre pre pretensions, but he could not pass by Brutus, nor would he afterwards listen to some who spoke against Brutus when the conspiracy against him was already afoot. But laying his hand on his body, said to the informers, Brutus will wait for this skin of mine, intimating that he was worthy to bear rule on account of his virtue, that he would not be based and ungrateful to gain it. 
those who desired to change and looked on him as the only or at least the most proper person to effect it. That's um, uh, Brutus was the most person, uh, best person to lead the conspiracy. Did not venture to speak with him, but in the nighttime laid papers about his chair of state where he used to sit and determine causes with such sentences and them as you are asleep, Brutus, and you are no longer Brutus. Okay, so uh, Shakespeare uses that as well. Cassius, when he perceived his ambition a little raised upon this, was more instant uh, than before to work to him further, having himself a private guard against Caesar, for some reasons we have mentioned in the life of Brutus. Nor was Caesar without suspicions of him, and said once to his friends, What do you think of Cassius is aiming at? I don't like him. He looks so pale. Okay, so that must be the lean and hungry look that uh, Shakespeare says. And was told him that Anthony and Dolabella went a plot against him. He said he did not fear such fat, luxurious men, but rather the pale, lean fellows, meaning Cassius and Brutus. Okay, there we there we go with the lean fellows. Fate, however, is to all appearance more unavoidable than unexpected. For many strange prodigies and apparitions are said to have been observed shortly before the event. As to the lights in the heavens, the noises heard in the night, and the wild birds which perched in the form, these are not perhaps worth taking notice of in so great a case as this. Okay, so uh, Shakespeare uses that as well. Strabo, the philosopher, tells us that a number of men were seen, looking as if they were heated through with fire and contending with each other, that a quantity of flame issued from the hand of a soldier's servant, so that they who saw it thought he must be, he must be burnt. But after all, he had no hurt. As Caesar was sacrificing, the victim's heart was missing, a very bad omen, because no living creature can exist without a heart. One finds it also related by many that a soothsayer bade him prepare for some great danger on the Ides of March. Okay, so beware the Ides of March. Uh, Shakespeare is stealing a great deal here, isn't he? When the day was come, Caesar, as he went to the Senate, met the soothsayer and said to him by way of raillery, the Ides of March are come. Who answered him calmly, yes, they are come, but they are not yet past. The day before his assassination, he supped with Marcus Lepidus, and he was signing some letters according to his custom as he reclined at table. There rose a question what sort of death was the best, and which he immediately, before anyone could speak, said, a sudden one. After this, as he was in bed with his wife, all the doors and windows of the house flew open together. He was startled at the noise, and the light which broke into the room and sat up in his bed, whereby the moonshine he perceived Calpurnia fast asleep, but heard her utter in her dreams some indistinct words and inarticulate groans. I wonder how anybody knows this. Oh, well. She fancied at the time she was weeping over Caesar and holding him butchered in her arms. Others say this was not her dream, but she dreamed that a pinnacle, which the Senate as Livy relates, uh, had ordered to be raised on Caesar's house by way of ornament and grandeur, was tumbling down, which was the occasion of her tears and ejaculations. When it was day, she begged of Caesar, if it were possible, not to stir out, but to adjourn the Senate to another time. And if he uh, slighted her dreams, he would be pleased to consult his fate by sacrifices and other kinds of divination. Nor was he himself without some suspicion and fears, for he never before discovered any womanish superstition in Calpurnia, whom he now saw in such great alarm. 
Upon the report which the priest made to him that they had killed several sacrifices and still found them in, inauspicious, he, re he, re he resolved to send Anthony to dismiss the Senate. In this juncture, Decimus Brutus, surnamed Albinus, one whom Caesar had such confidence in that he made him his second heir, was never the, and who nevertheless was engaged in the conspiracy with the other Brutus and Cassius, <coughs> fearing, lest if Caesar should put off the Senate to another day, the business um, might get wind, and as it can be discovered, spoke scoffingly and in mockery of the diviners, and blamed Caesar for giving the Senate so fair an occasion of saying he had put a slight upon them, for that they were met upon his summons and were ready to vote unanimously that he should be declared king of all the provinces out of Italy and might wear a diadem in any other place but Italy, that's a crown, by sea or land. If anyone should be sent to tell them I might break up for the president and meet again when Calpurnia should chance to have better dreams, what would his enemies say? Or who would with any patience hear his friends? They should presume to defend his government as not arbitrary and tyrannical. But if he was possessed so far as to think this day unfortunate, yet it were more decent to go himself to the Senate and to adjourn it by his own person. Brutus, as he spoke these words, took Caesar by the hand and conducted him forth. He was not gone far from the door when a servant of some other persons made towards him, but not being able to come up to him on account of the crowd of those who pressed about him, he made his way into the house and committed himself to Calpurnia, begging of her to secure him till Caesar returned, because he had matters of great importance to communicate to him. Artemiodorus, um, a Snidian, Snidian, a teacher of Greek logic, and by that means so far acquainted with Brutus and his friends as to have got into the secret, brought Caesar a small written memorial, the heads of which he had to depose. He had observed that Caesar, as he received any papers, presently gave them to the servants who attended on him, and therefore came as near as him as he could, and said, Read this, Caesar, alone and quickly, for it contains matter of great importance which nearly concerns you. I guess he should have just told him. Oh, well. Caesar received it and tried several times to read it, but was hindered by the crowd of those who came to speak to him. However, he kept it in his hand by himself till he came into the Senate. Some say it was another who gave Caesar this note, and that Artemiodorus could not get to him, being all along kept off by the crowd. All these things might happen by chance, but the place which he was destined to the scene of his of this murder, in which the Senate met that day, was the same in which Pompey's statue stood, and it was one of the edifices which Pompey had raised and dedicated with his theater to the use of the public, plainly showing that there was something of a supernatural influence which guided the action. and ordered it to that particular place. Cassius, just before the act, is said to have looked towards Pompey's statue and silently implored his assistance. Though he'd been inclined to the doctrines of Epicurus, so Epicurus, I guess, would not be superstitious that way. But this occasion and the instant danger carried him away out of all his reasonings and filled him for the first time with a sort of inspiration. That's, uh, I guess, divine breath, and that means... As for Anthony, who was firm to Caesar and a strong man, Brutus Albinus kept him outside the house and delayed him with a long conversation contrived on purpose. When Caesar entered, the Senate stood up to show their respect to him and a Brutus Confederate. Some came about his chair and stood behind it. Others met him. 
pretending to add their petitions to those of Tilius Keimer in behalf of his brother who was in exile. And they followed him with joint supplications till he came to the to seat. When he was sat down, he refused to comply with their request, and upon their urging him further, began to reproach them severely for their importunities. When Tilius, laying hold of his robe with both hands, pulled it down from his neck, which was a signal for the assault. Casca gave him the first cut in the neck, which was not mortal nor dangerous, as coming from one who at the beginning of such a bold action was probably very much disturbed. Caesar immediately turned about and lays his hands upon the dagger and kept hold of it, and both of them at the same time cried out that he had received the blow in Latin, Vile Casca, what does this mean? And that, and he gave that in Greek to his brother, and he that gave it in Greek, I guess that's Casca, in Greek to his brother. Brother, help! Upon this first onset, those who were not privy to the sign were astonished, and their horror and amazement at what they saw were so great that they durst not fly nor assist Caesar, nor so much as speak a word. But those who came prepared for the business enclosed him on every side with their naked daggers in their hands. For which, um, which way soever he turned, he met with blows and saw their swords leveled at his face and eyes and was encompassed like a wild beast in the toils on every side. For it agreed they should uh, each of them make a thrust at him and flush themselves with his blood, for which Brutus also gave him one stab in the groin. Some say that he fought and resisted all the rest, shifting his body to avoid the blows and calling out for help. When he saw Brutus' sword drawn, he covered his face with his robe and submitted, letting himself fall, whether it were by chance or that he was pushed in that direction by his murderers, at the foot of the pedestal on which Pompey's statue stood, and which was thus wetted with his blood, so that Pompey himself seemed to have presided, as it were, over the revenge done upon his adversary, who lay there at his feet, and breathed out his soul through his multitude of wounds, for they say he received three and twenty. Okay, and I think Shakespeare had his at, at thirty-three. And the conspirators themselves were many of them wounded by each other, whilst they all leveled their blows at the same person. Okay, doesn't have him saying it to Brute, though. Oh, well. When Caesar was dispatched, Brutus stood forth to give a reason for what they had done, but the Senate would not hear him, but flew out of doors in all haste and filled the people with so much alarm that the distraction that some uh, shut up their houses, others left their counters and shops. All ran one way or the other, some to the place to see the sad spectacle, others back again after they had seen it. Anthony and Lepidus, Caesar's most fateful friends, got off privately and hid themselves in some friends' houses. Brutus and his followers, being yet hot from the deed, marched in a body from the Senate House to the Capitol, with their drawn swords, not like persons who thought of escaping, but with an air of confidence and assurance. And as they went along, calling to the people to resume their liberty, and invited the company of any more distinguished people whom they met. And some of them joined the procession and went up along with them, as if they also had been uh, of the conspiracy and could claim a share in the honor of what had been done. As, for example, Caius Octavius and Latullus uh, Spencer, who suffered afterwards for their vanity, being taken off by Anthony and the young Caesar, and lost the honor they desired, as well as their lives, which it cost them, since no one believed they had any share in the action. For neither did those who punished them profess to revenge the fact, 
But the ill, but the ill will. The day after, Brutus, with the rest, came down from the capital and made a speech to the people, who listened without expressing either pleasure or resentment, but showed that by their silence that they pitied Caesar and respected Brutus. Okay, so uh, Shakespeare has the people being more favorable to Brutus and uh, unfavorable to uh, Caesar after Brutus's speech. The Senate passed acts of oblivion, uh, that's, I guess, for forgiveness and amnesty for what was passed, and took measures to reconcile all parties. They ordered that Caesar should be worshipped as a divinity, and nothing even of the slightest consequence should be revoked, which he had enacted during his government. So they made him a made him a god. At the same time, they gave Brutus and his followers the command of provinces and other considerable posts, so that all people now thought things were well settled and brought to the happiest adjustment. But when Caesar's will was opened, and it was found that he left a considerable legacy to each one of the Roman citizens, and when his body was seen carried through the marketplace all mangled with wounds, the multitude could no longer contain themselves within the bounds of tranquility and order, but heaped together a pile of benches, bars, and tables which they placed the corpse on, and setting fire to it, burnt it on them. Then they took brands from the pile and ran some to fire the houses of the conspirators, others up and down the city to find out the men and tear them to pieces, but met, however, with none of them, they having taken effectual care to secure themselves. Okay, so uh, we don't hear anything about Anthony whipping up the crowd in this uh, relation. One Cinna, a friend of Caesar's, chanced that night, the night before, to have had an odd dream. He fancied that Caesar invited him to supper, and upon his refusal to go with him, Caesar took him by the hand and forced him, though he hung back. Upon hearing the report that Caesar's body was burning in the marketplace, he got up and went thither out of respect to his memory. Though his dream gave him some ill apprehensions, and though he was suffering from a fever, one of the crowd who saw him there asked another who, who that was, and having learned his name, told it the next neighbor. It presently passed for certainty that he was one of Caesar's murderers, as indeed there was another Senna, a conspirator, and they, taking this to be the man, immediately seized him and tore him limb from limb on the spot. Brutus and Cassius, frightened at this, within a few days retired out of the city. What they afterwards did and suffered and how they died is written in the life of Brutus. Caesar died in his 56th year, not having survived Pompey above four years. That empire and power which he had pursued through the whole course of his life with so much hazard, he did at last with much difficulty compass, but reap no other fruits of it than the empty name and invidious glory. But the great genius which attended him through his lifetime, even after his death, remained as the avenger of his murder, pursuing through every sea and land all those who were connected in it, and suffering none to escape, but reaching all who in any sort or kind were actually engaged in the fact, or by their counsels in any way promoted it. The most remarkable of mere human coincidences was that what befell Cassius, who when he was defeated at Philippi, killed himself with the same dagger which he had been used of against Caesar. The most signal preternatural appearances were the great comet, which shone very bright for seven nights after Caesar's death and then disappeared and the dimness of the sun. Okay. Let's see in there. Virgil apparently uh, wrote some poetry about that. Dimness of the sun, his orb continued pale and dull for the whole of that year. 
never showing its ordinary radiance at, the, at its rising and giving but a weak and feeble heat. The air consequently was damp and gross for want of stronger rays to open and rarefy it. The fruits for that reason never properly ripened and began to wither and fall off for want of heat before they were fully formed. But above all, the phantom which appeared to Brutus showed the murder was not pleasing to the gods. The story of it is this. Brutus, being to pass his army from Abydos to the continent on the other side, laid himself down one night as he used to do in his tent, and was not asleep but thinking of his affairs, what events he might expect. For he is related to have been the least inclined to sleep of all men who have commanded armies, and to have had the greatest uh, natural capacity for continuing awake and employing himself without need of rest. He thought he heard a noise at the door of his tent, and looking that way by the light of his lamp, which is almost out, saw a terrible figure like that of a man, but of unusual stature and severe countenance. He was somewhat frightened at first, but seeing it neither did nor spoke anything to him, and they stood silently by his bedside, he asked who he was. The specter answered him, Thy evil genius, Brutus, thou shalt see me at Philippi. Brutus answered courageously, Well, I shall see you, and immediately the apparition vanished. When the time was come, he drew up his army near Philippi against Anthony and Caesar, and saw in the first battle, and in the first battle won the day, routed the enemy, and plundered Caesar's camp. The night before the second battle, the same phantom appeared to him again, but spoke not a word. He presently understood his destiny was at hand, and exposed himself to all the danger of the battle. Yet he did not die in the fight, but seeing his men defeated, got up to the top of a rock, and there presented his sword to his naked breast, and assisted, as they say, by a friend who helped him to give the thrust, met his death. So that is what... Plutarch has to say about uh, about Julius Caesar's death. And it doesn't seem like we have a life of Brutus. So um, I think we will next time start another play. And I believe that will be uh, Anthony and Cleopatra. So until then, adieu.